Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Hello, my curious and listening audience. Today I have an interesting topic for you all, and it is once again wrapped up in a single word. That word is discipline. What really is discipline? Now, in the modern day, I think that we have two major definitions of the word. And I believe that one of those two definitions is a complete farce. So the first definition has to do with what we would consider teaching discipline or issuing discipline. In other words, bringing consequences down upon an employee, a child, a social media user, when they do a bad thing, when they go outside of the rules, and we issue consequences upon them, be that in the social media arena, cutting off people's ability to make money, to an employee, not giving them the raise, firing them, to a child, spanking, yelling, or just reprimanding. The other definition that we have of discipline is more parallel to what we would call self-discipline. It is the ability to focus oneself. In other words, it takes discipline to learn how to play the piano. It takes discipline to understand math. It takes discipline to develop strong muscles. Now, what I firmly believe is that the first of these two definitions is the farce. Discipline in this sense not only does not achieve its goal, but it's not even discipline in the real sense. It is something very other, something very different than that and quite pernicious, really. So let's dive into it. First definition of discipline, issuing discipline, issuing consequences. This has to do largely with what we would consider the carrot and the stick. See, it's not just issuing consequences, it's issuing rewards. Good behavior gets you reward. Bad behavior gets you punishment. That's what we do with dogs. That's what we do with other animals. And we try to do the same thing with people. You can even see it on the government level. The more corrupt the government becomes, the more they attempt to issue discipline. They attempt to set up rules. The more desperate a government becomes, or a bureaucracy. Somebody does something wrong. Somebody goes outside of the rules. What do they do? We now have a rule. We set down a law that all people must follow. In other words, what they really allow to happen is that one bad egg ruins the entire dozen. One sour apple ruins the entire bushel in their minds. Because one person did bad thing, all people must now follow new rule. And it's really quite a weak position when you look at it that way. 
And it is showing, it is telling people, essentially, that they do not trust you. They do not trust the entire mass of people to do what is good, so they're going to issue a rule, and if you don't follow that rule, you'll get fined. If you don't follow that rule, you'll be thrown in jail, etc. If you don't follow that rule, the cops are going to put some cuffs on you, or at least issue you a ticket. And the question is, how does this work? Does it work at all? And I would contend that it doesn't. Behavior modification, especially with strong-willed and disagreeable children, and disagreeable, by the way, if you're not familiar with the word, it has to, or a uh, word in the context I'm using it, that is, disagreeable has to do with a personality test called the five, uh, the big five, if I remember rightly. And disagreeableness is simply on the spectrum of agreeable or disagreeable. Neither of them are bad. Neither of them are a problem. And both of them can be bad and both of them can be good in the way that they are used. Agreeableness typically is a person who is not going to argue, not going to stir the pot, not going to be willing to make things uncomfortable, and they certainly won't be willing to negotiate in most cases. A disagreeable person is somebody who will be willing to negotiate to assert their preferences and more importantly, they're going to be very resistant to being plain told what to do. So, and it's not just, by the way, the disagreeable person who discipline in this sense doesn't work on, but it's just more pronounced. So, for example, you issue a rule upon somebody who is more disagreeable, especially if you have power over that person, be it a child, an employee, what have you, they're not going to want to obey you. What they're going to do instead is see how they can get away with whatever it is they want to get away with. In other words, they will more cleverly hide whatever cheat or rule-breaking they're doing while they continue to push towards their goals in some other area. They simply learn to be more clever. And why would they do that? Well, one easy answer to that is the issuing discipline, quote-unquote, in this fashion doesn't make anybody want to do what you're, getting them, what you're wanting them to do in the first place. Why? Because it damages the relationship. See, when you discipline in this sense, what you're doing is not loving that person. You're not being kind to that person. You're not looking out for that person's good, you're looking to keep things organized in the way you want them to be organized. You want your rules to be followed. You're not helping that person like you or care about you or want to help you to organize things the way that you want them organized. You're encouraging them to dislike you. So they may depend on you, they may earn their wages from you, so they have to, quote, obey you, but that doesn't mean that they want to do it. So therefore, they're going to continue pursuing what they want in spite of you, quite obviously, because they like you less as a result of what you're doing. Again, they may have to stay there, but they will resent you the more. 
And this is fairly common to all people, even those who are, quote, agreeable. But it becomes a bit more complex and harder for those people to sort out. Anyway, discipline in this sense damages relationships. And when, and when relationships are damaged, you are doing the opposite of motivating somebody else to help you achieve your goals. Therefore, once again, though they may modify their behavior because they are more or less forced to, to satisfy you in the moment, since they are not being brought in further to want to ally with you and help you with your ends, they're going to work for their own ends instead. So let's address the elephant in the room, the Bible, the Christian perspective of these things. Because, I, because if you're following my logic here, what I'm also telling everyone is that discipline in the sense of issuing consequences upon children also doesn't work. Now, as far as I understand it, this does follow the evidence of many studies, but what Christians are going to start bringing up is spare the rod, spoil the child. And the judgments that God had upon the Israelites, particular, particularly in the books of or the book of Exodus. So let's address those. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Also parallels with thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Now, as far as I have learned to understand these things, the rod and the staff, though I don't remember which is which, were used in shepherding one to guide a sheep to go in the direction desired. So in other words, there was a bit of pressure or visual stimuli to help the sheep go where the shepherd wanted them to go. And then the other, if the sheep started going a little off the path, it would get them a light tap to remind them, hey, you're going in the wrong direction, follow the rod or the staff, whichever the other one was. Now this does not involve beating the sheep. It's just giving them a tap. It's a physical reminder, yes, but it's just getting them back on the right path. It's more like helping them in guidance, or tutoring even, but I'll get to a little bit more of that later. So spare the rod, spoil the child. What does that really mean? Well, if you don't correct, guide, and tutor a child, they don't know where to go. See, there are a lot of parents out there these days, and I have to admit that I am somewhat among these as well, who are given the bare necessities, the basic things, maybe some affection and some love, food and shelter, schooling, church. But as far as guiding, tutoring, teaching, important lessons around the home, pretty well hands off. Not really much teaching, tutoring, guiding at all. And those, when those children grow up, especially if they turn out well, it's a fair question to ask, who raised you? Why? Because all of that was essentially left out when it came to their home life, when it came to their parents. And the correct answer to that question, who raised these children, are things like the internet, YouTube, books, other sources of wisdom videos, which of course aligns with YouTube. See, people like that search, they still have those questions, how do I live? How do I function in society? 
So they start looking for it. Maybe they have a group of friends that they ask. Maybe they, again, look on the internet. Maybe they search through books. They want to be tutored. I know I wanted to be. And I'm not saying I got none of it. I just didn't get very much of it. So I looked for books. I looked for wisdom. I looked for truth. And I started finding it. So spare the rod, spoil the child? Now you could say, yes, you know, keep correction from them, and you spoil them. Well, also, keep tutoring and guidance from them, and they have no idea where to go. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. They are about guiding. They are about helping the sheep go in the right direction, the direction that the shepherd desires, which is hopefully a good direction. Now, the other issue is when God did what he did to the Israelites in the book of Exodus in particular and other places, but Exodus is the most pronounced, so we can go straight there. The Israelites make a golden calf. Many of the Israelites are dead by the end of that day. It wasn't the same day, but you get my point. The Israelites cry out for meat because they're getting tired of the manna. While the food is still in their mouths, many of them perish. What's going on here? Now, one thing that I want to point out right away is that consequences of these kinds, or reactions, if you will, are always more pronounced, including in human relationships, when you are closer in that relationship. You look at other times in the Bible when the Israelites have gone slightly further away from God, or very much further away, and you don't see this kind of thing. You don't see a bunch of Israelites just dying after they start worshiping, worshiping another idol or something like that, or worshiping an idol. No, they're largely left to their own devices. Why? Well, in the same way that if you, for example, were to be in some sort of social group, and, you know, there's one guy there who, it turns out, doesn't really like you very much, in fact, thinks quite poorly of you, but neither of you are very close to each other. And he starts telling other members of the group or maybe posting on the internet how, how terrible a person this person thinks that you are. If you have any good level of self-respect and confidence, are you, are you really going to care what that guy says? Not really. Why? Because you're not very close to them. On the other hand, if it is your spouse or your best friend who you've known for years and are very close to, and they say something negative about you, they say something judgmental, they say how much of a terrible person they think you are, well, that's going to matter. That's going to hurt. Now, obviously, I'm not trying to draw exact an exact parallel here, but what I am saying is that if you are distant in a relationship, the effect on you is pretty minimal. If you are close in a relationship, it's pretty major. So I think that's one contributing factor here. And another thing that I want to show you in this analogy is the fact that in the closer relationship, you have made specific agreements. Maybe not in word, maybe not through a contract, but certainly through your actions. If you've chosen to be close to this person, then 
you have already made an agreement towards a certain level of behavior. In other words, it should be expected of you to behave thus and thus. And maybe you've managed to do it for a time. And then if you go back on that, if you start acting in a very different manner, a manner that is at least not parallel or a complete opposite way, a 180 turn, then of course the consequences are going to be more dire. You previously chose, you made an agreement to behave in a certain way. And is this not, if you know the book of Exodus and those, and just the Bible in general, particularly during these times, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, the Israelites were making specific spoken agreements to obey the Lord, and then they proceeded to fail to do so. They broke their own contracts. They broke their own covenants. Of course, the consequences were more dire and very immediate. And I personally think that when it comes to the acts of destruction through just plague or even the very earth opening up and swallowing people, I don't think that this is an example of discipline. I think this is an example of wrath. The evil must be destroyed. For a further discussion on that, you can refer to my podcast called The Goodness of Anger. See, if you consider what God was doing during that time to be discipline, then it failed pretty darn badly. God himself failed to discipline the Israelites. How do I know that? Because just look at the arc of Israel's history after that. In fact, these times are referred to over and over again, not necessarily saying, look how God corrected you, it says, look at what happened to the Israelites when they went against God. It was pretty darn bad for them. And they just kept on rebelling and rebelling and turning against God and turning against God. Just look at the book of Judges. It happens over and over again. If God was trying to discipline the Israelites, he failed. On the other hand, if he was trying to root out evil as soon as it popped up in a time when the Israelites were very close to God, I mean, come on, he showed up physically on the top of Mount Sinai. He spoke face to face with Moses. Then that makes a whole lot more sense. Now, how about the other kinds of consequences? For example, when the land was in drought, when the crops didn't produce when their enemies chased them rather than them rather than them chasing their enemies see to me that is an example of built in baked in consequences that god just kind of allows to happen and this also has a very convenient parallel with good parenting good parenting many a good father and this is something that dads have a tendency to be more focused on are willing to allow their children to make mistakes that the, parent, the father knows that they are making and allow the consequences to accrue as they normally would. Why? Because this teaches the child, hey, that doesn't work very well. And an even better father will hopefully have a sort of post-mortem, if you will, a discussion about what went wrong and why it went wrong and what decisions the child made that led them towards that result and help tutor them to improve. 
God tells the Israelites ahead of time that if you go against me and if you go against, say, for example, giving the land Sabbaths, giving the land Jubilees, if you go against me, your enemies are going to have the advantage because immorality breeds chaos and disorder. And I'm not saying that he points that out specifically, but it is something that we can see in retrospect. These are baked in consequences. And they did accrue over and over again. And I'm not saying that we can point to every way in which their physical activities led to physical uh, poor results. But a lot of these things are specifically baked in. And we see God mostly not getting personally involved and just kind of letting these things come as they naturally do. So again, if God is disciplining them, in other words, trying to behavior modify, he does a really poor job. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And clever children, if they are disciplined in this way, are just going to find a way to hide things better. And here's another thing, the rebel phase, or rebellion phase, that we've kind of been taught to expect in this society. Oh, when your kid hits their mid-teens, they're going to rebel. See, I've found this personally to be extremely confusing. Why? Because I never did. I never had a rebellious phase. Did I have difficult phases? Absolutely. And mine were actually earlier on, not in my teens. My teens were when I started really grasping truths, when I started grasping, hey, if I do the right things in relationship with my mother, who I've always had a bit more of a frictive relationship with, things improve. Hey, magic. Not really. <laughs> it's just learning how to do relationships well. I never rebelled. I never went against my parents in that sense. I never started to sin and do things that I knew my parents disapproved of. And we who have been there as teens know just to spite our parents. We know that's why we do it. A lot of us don't want to say it out loud, but that's why we do it in that phase. What's going on? My opinion here is that teens who are going through this phase are starting to get to the mental and emotional place in their development that they can identify hypocrisy. And no human being likes hypocrisy. They hate it to the core of who they are. See, for example, if a parent is, quote, disciplining their child, telling them you are not allowed to not follow the rules. In other words, they're telling them that if there is a rule, for you to go against it is a bad thing. But then that same child is observing their parents talking, for example, about how it's bad to lie. And then when it comes to a situation where lying would accrue negative consequences on that parent. Or sorry, I said that the wrong way around. When being honest would accrue negative consequences on that parent, they'll lie their butts off. 
And yeah, they might do it in a nice-seeming way and try to fluff it up and make it look all cozy and pleasant. But nevertheless, they're saying what is not the truth. That child sees that. And there are far more severe examples, some that I've heard very recently. I'm not going to bring those up. But I'm just trying to lay, lay down the principle here. Now, the child may not know how to express that, but once again, when you hit the teen years and your brain is developing to the point where you still might not be able to describe it, but you can sense it, you can start to see what's really going on. Here's another one. Parents teach their children that if you don't do your chores, it's bad. And they punish their children, maybe through reprimands, maybe through spankings, if they refuse to do their chores. But then they see the same parent being lazy. They see the same that same parent not really willing to wash the dishes today, and the next day, and the next day and the next day. They'd rather do something else. Maybe they don't want to organize the rooms. The living room is cluttery. Ah, but then of course when a guest is coming over, they'll do it. Why? Because they want to put a good on a good, put on a good appearance for guests. But when it's just them, eh, not that big a deal. So your chores as the child are important. But the parents' chores, what they've never told the kids to do, or maybe they just get the kids to try to do everything for them. And that's just another version of the same thing. They're not seeing the parents exemplifying the very behaviors they're, quote, teaching, disciplining the children to do. That's hypocritical. And again, it can get much more serious than this. But what I am getting at is that when the child reaches the teen years, why why would they want to spite their parents? Oh my goodness, it's such a mystery. No, it isn't. I've lived the opposite. My parents had their failings and their weaknesses for sure, but they weren't hypocrites. And I'm not saying not ever, right? Just not constantly, not chronically. So I never had any need to rebel against my parents. I never had any need to show my parents through my actions hypocrisy. Oh yeah, I believe in all this Christian stuff, but I'm going to have a relationship with a homosexual. Oh yeah, I believe in all this Christian stuff, but ah, weed's pretty cool. That's hypocrisy. See, one of the other kind of parallel behaviors that people do, and it's fairly subtle and it's hard for people to notice, is if somebody else is making you feel in a particular fashion, and this can go for happiness, pleasure, or frustration, anger, usually the immediate response, especially if we have low self-awareness and self-control, is to try to make the other person feel the same way they're making you feel you will start becoming frustrating to them. You will start becoming angering to them. Or you will start becoming happy towards them. You will start doing things that give them pleasure. Why? Because it's reciprocal. You reciprocate whatever it is that the other person is helping you to feel. 
So again, what I'm getting at is that discipline in this sense might only, not only doesn't work, but if the parent is in addition being hypocritical, then the child is eventually going to rebel. And this happens constantly in our society today. See, discipline in this sense for a lot of parents is just an excuse to, to give themselves an out. It's rules for thee, but not for me. What it really is, is authoritarianism. What it really is, is being a tyrant and a bully. You have the authority, so you can set up the rules, and you can try to force the children, or whoever's under you, be it employees, constituents, to follow the rules. But when it comes to you yourself, eh, it's optional. Are you beginning to see how this is the very inverse of discipline in the other definition? I must be disciplined in order to be able to play piano. I must be disciplined in order to succeed in relationships. See, when you show a child that if you have the authority and you can set up the rules and just force other people to do what you want them to do, then what you have actually instructed them to know is that if they can get authority, then they can force other people the same way. They also can have rules for thee and not for me. And this is how these things spread. This is how these things go from one generation to the other. Do you really think that's how God behaves? Now, maybe you do think that that is the way that God behaves. And if so, I understand. I don't agree, of course. But we do have a tendency to associate God with whatever image of authority we tend to see the most or believe in the most, think is what authority really means and really is. So I don't really blame anybody for that, but... I hope that you'll go into further study. But in any case, I hope that's, that what is becoming more obvious to you in this discussion is that when people issue discipline in this sense, what they're really doing is they're playing God. See, it's really wanting to take power without accepting responsibility. We all want to be God without actually being... Sorry, we want to have what God has, or what the authority has, what the president has, what the CEO has, without accepting the disciplines, without accepting the responsibility, without accepting the tasks that must be fulfilled in order to get there, in order to in fact, wield that power rightly or competently. So playing God always fails at being anything like God. The Bible does not say that we should do that. The Bible doesn't even say that we should take power. 
Power is given by God, but it's not something that we are supposed to try to get. It's one of the reasons, I think, why God rejected the Israelites, for, or not rejected, but was against the Israelites for wanting a king. We're not supposed to reach for it ourselves. It's something that God is to give to us, and particularly in the case of the Israelites. So the Bible, what it does tell us to do, for example, the Apostle Paul, be imitators of God, therefore. Can't remember the specific verse, but if you Google that, you'll find it pretty quick. Another part of the Bible, be holy as I am holy. I think that's Jesus, but don't quote me on that, or on that reference. What we're actually supposed to do is become like God. That's what he, in fact, wants us to do. And when we play God, when we take discipline in this way, when we are authoritarian and tyrannical and bullying, we definitely do not succeed at being like God. And is this not what parenting should be as well? We should be, first of all, competent, loving, kind, gracious, and patient ourselves, and then teach our children, guide and tutor and love and be kind to our children, teaching them and showing them how to be like us. We are supposed to be delivering our children into the adult world capable and competent to succeed in that world. That is the goal. So, that dovetails quite nicely into what I think discipline actually is and how it's taught. I just pointed out that one of the most important things in teaching human beings how to be human beings is how to succeed in relationships. There's a lot of other things, of course. Learning an instrument. Learning a skill. Especially a skill that can be easily monetized. How to be successful in the adult world in every sort of way should be the goal. And again, it should be something that you're already good at, so you cannot just teach it, but you can exemplify it for your children. Or again, for your employees, for your constituents. If you guide and tutor those who are under you, Discipline is what comes along the way. Children already want the approval and want a good relationship with their parents. And when the children misbehave, if you discipline them in the sense of issuing consequences and so on, are you teaching them how to succeed in their relationship with you? Are you helping them to get the response from you that they already want, which is your approval, for you to like them? No. The lack of communication between people in any kind of relationship, but particularly from parents to children, is absolutely monstrous and tragic. Do parents teach their children not to follow a set of rules, but how to get along with you, the parent. 
very, very seldom. But if we did, if we taught them, hey, when you do this naughty thing, I don't like it. I don't approve of that. How can that be solved? Well, how about you do this and this instead? They're more likely to listen to an instruction like that, in my opinion. And if they do, if they begin to behave in such a way that they can get along with you better in relationship, guess what's happening? They are disciplining themselves. In other words, in order to focus themselves in the correct direction to get along with you, the parent, or the other parent, or their teacher, they will discipline themselves automatically to fit into that category. This goes back again to the idea of making agreements, contracts, covenants. If you have already agreed to do something, then you will be disciplining yourself to do that thing correctly. All you really might need is tutoring and guidance and instruction in order to do it rightly, in order to do it well and successfully. You are the one teaching yourself to be disciplined. But you have to agree, you have to, agree to do it. And what I'm saying is that children, very naturally and for good reason, already want to do that with their parents. They want to succeed in that relationship. But if the parent is not interested in the relationship, in other words, if they're apathetic or distant, they're probably going to start looking for other relationships that will replace that emotional gap. So they'll have a friend that they look up to, and they'll start imitating that friend. See it happen all the time. They want to get approval within relationship. They want to succeed in relationship. We all know deep down in our guts that that is how we succeed in life. But do you really want your child to be imitating just some friend? Or you? Well, the friend might be undisciplined. The friend might have poor morals. The friend might be very clever and just know how to cheat. How to get their way, how, how to get their way, how to force their way. You want your child learning from them? I'm not saying that children shouldn't have friends, but I, what I am saying is that the chief person that they should want to imitate is their parents. But the only time that you want to imitate somebody else is when you have a loving, affectionate, and bonded relationship with that person. Otherwise, you really don't have an interest in imitating them. You have an interest, rather, in getting around them. And if you can't get away, you'll just find a way to cheat it, to be clever, to be shrewd. Which, by the way, are not necessarily bad skills. They're very good skills. But in this kind of a context, it's probably not good to use it there. So what I'm getting at is that discipline is, a, is the sort of thing that should come from within, not be administered from without. Discipline is what we teach ourselves to do. It's not what other people teach us to do. Discipline is self-mastery. Discipline is focus. Discipline is learning a skill. 
It is not administrative. It is not from the top down. That always fails. See, discipline used in the wrong sense is a substitute and a really bad substitute at that for actual tutoring, for teaching, for instructing. Instead of teaching a person how to do a thing, we set up rules to keep with consequences that don't get anything into the mind and into the heart and into the soul of a person, be it a child, an employee, or otherwise. You don't actually learn the mechanics of how to do a thing except following rules. But what happens when those rules are gone? What happens when that child grows up and goes out and lives on their own? Is it any wonder that we have so many basement dwellers these days? Children who fail to launch. Why? Because they don't know how to do anything. They've just been growing up with rules, 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 rules. And we call it discipline. No. You can't teach discipline that way. Discipline is a thing that we choose for ourselves. If you are passionate to, again, play the piano, if you're passionate to create games, if you're passionate, for example, myself, to learn philosophy, you will teach yourself the discipline. You can be encouraged. You can be focused and instructed by others. You can be helped. But the chief thing is that you are the one who chose it. That is how you learn real discipline. So, that's all I have to say on this topic for now. I hope you all enjoyed it and found it interesting. Have a great day.